Welcome to episode two of Explore History's podcast on World War II, entitled Dear CB, A Soldier's Experience of War Through Letters. We left off the last podcast at the end of letter seven, so we now begin with letter eight. Dear CB, I'm in hospital, the 23rd Scottish General, and I'm surrounded by chocolate biscuits, unread papers, and oranges. The hospital is on the edge of an orange grove in Palestine. In a tent quite nearby are some Italian officers who think they're going to win the war. Life consists of a series of fresh experiences, most of which fade away in the dim haze of memory, lying dormant in the subconscious that recalled only on rare occasions. In civilian life, when I saw an ambulance in the streets, morbidity used to fill me and I always wondered what was inside, hoped I would never be inside. I had a deadly fear of entering a hospital. In the Middle East, the grey, efficient ambulances of the RAMC made me familiar with the outside. But I had never been inside and never wished to go inside. A general was coming to lunch in our mess. I felt ill, so I went to bed. As I didn't much want to see the general, it was a good thing. Two days later, the doctor said, I think you'd better go to hospital. No, doc, I pleaded. I've never been to hospital in my life. I don't want to start now. I don't feel it at all as though I want to go to hospital. Couldn't I wait and see how I am tomorrow? The doctor left me until the next day. Next day, I wanted to go to hospital. Nothing would have kept me from hospital. Okay, I'll send for the ambulance, said Jeffrey Brooks. My heart went pit-a-pat. They carried me out on a stretcher. I thought I'd be seasick any moment. They placed me in the ambulance. It was sleek and shiny inside, and full of slick aluminium fittings. They slid the stretcher into the interior. The ambulance started. Every turn we went round a corner, I nearly rolled onto the floor. The sky through the windows did the queerest things. It seemed to move about one minute coming down to meet me, and then going away rapidly. It shot all over the place. We arrived at the hospital. Convoy canvas all around. The door opened and the driver popped his head in. All right, sir, he asked. All right, I replied. The door closed. Five minutes later, a corporal arrived. All right, sir, he queried. All right, I replied. Ten minutes later, a sergeant came into the ambulance. He took down a lot of personal particulars. The name of my next of kin, just a routine matter, he said, when I looked alarmed. Taking particulars took some five minutes. The sergeant left. Twenty minutes later, in came a major, a hospital registrar. He was armed with particulars that the sergeant had obtained. He glanced at me and ran through the particulars. Correct, he asked. Correct, I replied. Now tell me all about yourself. This was too much. Doctor, I said, I've been telling people all about myself for the last half an hour. But he wasn't satisfied. I told him what he wanted. Eventually, they got me into bed. That night, I had a temperature of 104.8. Was it a wonder? I also had malaria. There are a lot of Australians from the 6th Division here, wounded in Libya. Yesterday, therefore, we had a visit from the high and mighty ones of this good earth. Staff cars, symbolical in their khaki unity, crawled smoothly about the hospital roads in a long caterpillar. Although this is a Scottish hospital, there's more Australian officers here than British. The young Aussie officer in the next bed told me that a WAP shell landed amongst his platoon at Bardia. I turned to wave his boys on. Get moving, I said. What the devil are you lying there for? Then I found out why they were lying there. Not one of them could move. Shrapnel was in every one of them. Only one died. He had both his legs blown off. He simply said, I've been hit, sir. Yes, we had a premier here yesterday afternoon, Menzies of Australia. He looked in here on his way to meet Winston Churchill in England. 
The authorities were only forewarned of his visit the day previous, but they didn't worry. Scots don't worry. There are only three officers' wards being used at present. The sisters in our ward are florists. They like flowers, and so the ward is full of lovely blooms of Palestine, bowls of flowers. One is on my table as I write this, pink sycamore. They buy the best flowers with their own money and stolidly refuse to allow us to buy any. We'll have to buy them some chocolates or something else when we get up. The other two wards haven't got any flowers. For the Premier's visit, they put all the Australian officers into one tent. Normally, we're all mixed up. They borrowed our flowers to put into the all-Australian tent. The Aussies thought the whole thing thoroughly ridiculous, but laughed it off. All the Australian or bed patients were put into huge tents, and the up patients congregated into marquees. Menzies went around and believe you me, there is nothing deferated about the Australian soldiers. They asked him a number of questions about beer, mail and money. They weren't scared of their premier. He came to the Aussie officer's ward. We watched from a distance, struggling out of bed, those who could, and looking on from outside, wrapped in our great coats. Cars drew up alongside, khaki slugs of speed. All the Australians were in the first car. General after general came out, tough-looking, competent men. Be ribbon and sunburned. Blamey was there. The Australian war correspondents and cameramen were there. At the back of the combine was General Neem's car, and he is GOC uh, Palestine, and with him as ADC was Dan Ranfarley of my regiment. The Premier walked out of the ward. He had spoken to his officers, just like a company commander's inspection, said one afterwards. So the Prime Minister and his galaxy of stars walked out and into the cars. General uh, Cameras clicked. Sisters clucked with pleasure. We filed away. We had seen a premiere from down under. Every day one sees a new sight. Yours, Stuart. Letter 9. Dear CB, you'll be surprised and perhaps be somewhat gratified to learn that at last I fired a few shots in anger at the enemy, though without a doubt they were pretty erratic shots. When I was in a hospital in Palestine, the regiment got orders to move. The equivalent of one squadron was to go to Crete, and the equivalent of two squadrons and RHQ to newly captured Libya. Being in hospital, I was left behind with instructions to collect all the other personnel left behind for one reason or another, and to bring them on. While doing this, I was billeted with the Yorkshire Dragoons up at Acre. During this period, whilst I was waiting for during this period, whilst I was waiting for some of our men to come out of hospital, I spent three weeks there and rode every day. They'd still got all their horses. As my cavalry sword is now no further use to me, and I don't want to lug it all over the place, I sold it to Bruce Hobbs for three pound. As I paid five pound fifteen shillings for it, and as, owing to Angel's carelessness, the blade is a bit pitted with rust, don't think I struck such a bad bargain. After a time, I managed to collect twenty men, and we set off, hardly a gay party, for Libya. We were a train ride from Haifa to a transit camp near Alexandria, not a very pleasant journey. After a whole series of petty misadventures, we arrived at the camp. The journey had taken some 30 hours. We were welcomed at the camp by a howling sandstorm which stung the face and blinded the eyes. It was not a comfortable camp and it was very crowded with troops going to Greece and Crete. We left early in the morning for the dockside. Here we hung about for a couple of hours and then got on a pathetically small ship, the Rosanna. This used to be a yacht of Lord Moyne's and isn't anymore because at the bottom of the sea. 
There was another ship accompanying us on this journey to Tobruk. White crescents topped the waves. We moved out of the harbour. The ships began to roll. It was very rough. It was so rough that I was most horribly sick. More ill than ever in my life before. My world, I thought, had come to an end. How I wished we could have gone by road. Next morning, the sea had calmed somewhat. When we arrived in Tobruk Harbour at three o'clock, it was under blue sky and over a calm sea. Tobruk, under these conditions, really looked quite picturesque. White houses, battered a bit, a long coastline full of wadis. Blue sea and a harbour dotted with ships sunk and yet to be sunk. Before we disembarked, we were shown the appropriate air raid shelter to which we were to go should we still be on the quayside when the raiders came overhead. We were met on the quay by TPR Coleman on an Italian bicycle who gave us the rumour, utterly false, that the regiment was going home. They sent a truck down for us and RHQ and I had a tea in the mess up there. We were split up into batteries and our We were split up into batteries, and our job is to fire every conceivable type of gun, from six-inch naval guns to pom-pom guns and brittas. I'm a Michael Laycock's B battery. There's one battery in Benghazi under Peter Laycock, A and B battery in RHQ in Tobruk, and a battery in Crete. The whole thing's rather impromptu and split up. After a couple of days in the town, I moved across to the south side where I am independent. There are three ways of getting into contact with Battery HQ. To signal across the harbour by flag or light, to row across in a boat, or to go all round in vehicle, a distance of about four miles. At first things were pretty quiet. Our forward troops are well in the... well... At first things were pretty quiet. Our forward troops are well the other side of Benghazi, and Jerry has had just arrived, does not seem to be up to much. After about seven days, however, we had our first raid. In the past, apparently, they'd been trying to plaster E.I. Adam Aerodrome, but on this occasion, it was the harbour they were after. I was in the observation post at the time on the cliffside. There couldn't have been any, pl been any planes. They there couldn't have been many planes. They came in quite low, and the bombs fall the other side of the harbour. I was quite frightened as this was the first air raid I'd been in, although it doesn't seem sound anything to you back in England. After this, we'd raids every night or so. The most unpleasant thing that has been happening is that a whole series of dead bodies have recently been washed up in the little cove where we have our camp. They're a little bloated and not very nice to look at. They've come off the Ros Rosannas. They've come off the Rosaris. The morning after they had docked in Torbuck, she was due to go back to Alex with Italian prisoners. She just got the other side of the boom when there was an explosion and the ships began to sank. There was a great deal of shrieking and yelling and one could observe people milling about in the sea. She'd been blown up by a magnetic mine. In spite of the fact that there were plenty more mines about the harbour, sown by Italians and German aircraft, all sorts of little British ships rushed out to the rescue. A large number of the people were saved, but fortunately or unfortunately, a quantity were drowned. It is their disfigured remains that wash up here as we have our breakfast. We live quite comfortably in a little valley by the sea. We can walk from our tents to the cove where we 
where we swim in 30 seconds. The rations are excellent and we've been able to fit up our camp and our cookhouse with all the sorts of things left behind by the Italians. The floors of our tents, for instance, are cemented and some of us have managed to get civvy beds. The shots we've fired in anger so far have been at a few bombers and most of the shooting has been ineffective because the planes were too high. However, there's every likelihood of, of having more active work as rumour has it that our line is broken west of Benghazi and that the Germans are on the move for Tobruk. People are falling back. Some of our own chaps from Benghazi have already arrived. Erie de la Rue has passed right through on his way to Egypt with Italian prisoners. Some units seem to be leaving Tobruk, some staying. No one knows quite what is happening, what units are to remain and what are to go. One thing is certain, we are going to stay. I hope to write you again, but who knows? Yours, Stuart. Letter 10. Dear CB, Unhappily, I'm again in hospital, and it isn't so comfortable as the one in Palestine. I'm in Tobruk Hospital, and it's rather reminiscent of the Richmond's Hospital in Gone with the Wind. The last three months have been really exciting. From living a fairly peaceful sub-area life on the LNC, we have become a world-famous besieged garrison. We are the rats of Tobruk. Things moved fast at first that we were all bewildered. Some units left Tobruk in a hurry. The 9th Australian Division, for whom we all have the highest opinion, fell back on the perimeter, supported by regiments of British gunners, mostly RHA. To try and give you a broad picture of the battles and the siege, it would be too big a job here, so I'll tell you for the most part how it affected us. Roughly, the perimeter with the British and Australians on one side and the Germans and Italians on the other is from 8 to 12 miles from the town. The only part of this intense local war that we have actually taken part in has been the air war, and of that we've seen plenty. Some of our men were detached and sent up to the front to aid the peculiar organization known as the Bush Rangers, a body of Australian gunners firing any guns they can lay hands on. Around April 15th, the first big German attack came, and on May 1st, the second. At the beginning, one could hear the enemy approaching by the sound of his gunfire gradually growing nearer. One night, the noise of the enemy's guns and ours was pretty frightful. The sky was lit up with gun flashes. Night bombers came over the harbour. We're all issued with instructions as to what small kit we were to take with us if we were captured. Hardly a man amongst us thought we would not be captured. I, for one, with the help of my new servant, Angel went to Crete and was captured, dug a hole in the sand and buried the more precious of my private possessions. The fact that we are still here and surrounded amazes me. The first morning of the battle for Tobruk, the ferocious... The first morning of the battle for Tobruk, the ferocious air attacks began. Our own local air force uh, of a few hurricanes was soon swept off the EI Adam Aerodrome. Our own local air force of a few hurricanes was soon swept off the E-1 Adam Aerodrome. What a battle the last one was. Some German bombers came straight over the harbour. Half the few hurricanes took off to give chase to the bombers. When they just disappeared out of sight, a whole swarm of Messerschmitts arrived and started shooting up the planes left on the, on the aerodrome. Some managed to take off. There must have been 30 or 40 enemy planes. Soon the other hurricanes returned in a fierce but very unequal battle took place right over our heads. The aerodrome was only a couple of miles behind us. Planes were whizzing a few hundred feet above us. There was a battle going on on up top. Suddenly, one of the 
plane started coming down in a spiral, smoke pouring from its tail. The last possible moment, a white figure bundled out. I thought his parachute would never open, but it did. He came down about 200 yards away. I raced up to him, and his back was turned. I thought he was a German. Tall, very blonde, with long hair and spotless white flying suit. He turned round and spoke to me, and I realized he was British. He was the squadron leader. That afternoon, the two or three remaining hurricanes flew away east for good, and we did not see British planes for some time to come. However, I seem to have drifted from my story. The big German attack started. We were all manning our guns at first light. My command consisted of a Vickers naval pom-pom gun, an ancient three-pounder gun, a couple of Italian Breda guns, three Hotchkiss and Vickers medium machine guns, some rifles, and a very light pistol. Most of these guns worked from time to time, and the much... Most of these guns worked from time to time, and the much-despised Hotchkiss was a love was a lovey, and we looked after them very well. They seldom let us down. Most of these guns worked from time to time, and the Hotchkiss was a lovey, and we looked after them very well. They seldom let us down. About a quarter past eight, there was considerable and ominous droning in the sky. Then the town of Tobruk got it. Our first, our first low-level dive bombing raid. About 80 Stukas swirled down, peeled out of the sky, interspersed with a few fighters. They swarmed all over the place and were very concentrated owing to the tiny size of Tobruk Harbor. They got a hot reception. We had plenty to ack-ack stuff in the place batteries of 37s and the Bofors. Everybody was firing. The sky was full of black puffs of smoke and tracers. I'm always, I'm always continued to marvel. I'm always continued to marvel at the way the Germans come screeching down through all this stuff seemingly unharmed. But of course, as time went on, we got plenty. First day we had three raids, mostly devoted against shipping in the harbor, the docks and the heavy ack-ack guns. As far as I can remember, we didn't down a plane the first day. The trouble the whole time is that one doesn't really know what damage one is doing. It only takes a few seconds for Jerry to fly over our lines and back to safety. Even though their planes are badly shot up, they cannot help but crawl back to their, feet, back to their friends with smoke pouring from their tails. This doesn't happen in all cases, of course. Some of them full plunk into the sea. I think I was on the I think I was on the second day of the siege proper that a JUS was shot down and belly flopped about 400 yards from our RHQ. The two airmen hopped down and immediately started unleashing their machine guns in order to fire at our chaps. But so hot was our own fire that they quietly put down their guns and flung up their hands, packing in. They were taken over by Sergeant Hayward. One of them was a pleasant chap, the other a surly brute. One of them said he'd be over nodding him a few weeks previously. That didn't make him frightfully popular. In a dive bombing raid, fear gives place to excitement. There's so many planes going in so many directions and dropping so many bombs that one has little chance to sit still and be frightened. They took getting used to at first, though. On the first day of the battle, we had three low-level and one high-level attack over the harbour. At tea time, we saw the Stukas raiding the front lines. 
The boys there haven't got half the ACAC protection that we've got down here in the harbour area. I've got some more to tell you about Tobruk, so I'll write again tomorrow. Yours, Stuart. Letter 11. Dear CB, You recall that in my last letter I told you we were getting plenty of air raids? Well, we still are. But during the months of April, May, and June, they were terrific. The only days they didn't come over were when there were sandstorms. The sandstorms were bloody. Sand got everywhere, into the food, into the ears and eyes. It was impossible to see more than three or four feet. There was never any difficulty for us keeping clean. The sea was at our doorstep and we spent a great deal of time in it. The, sea, the safest time was after each raid. Nor has there been any difficulty about dress. Most of us on the gun positions just wear shorts, a pair of socks, and generally Italian boots, which are very good. The rations are excellent and they never fail. Fresh meat is non... Fresh meat is non-CST and likewise eggs and very often we have hard biscuits instead of white bread. But for the most part, the men have been satisfied with their rations. What does make us comment rather bitterly is this. We hear statements made at home saying that the troops in Tobruk are well off for NAAFI supplies and this is utter nonsense. We are very, bad, very badly off. Beer works out at about a third of a bottle per man every three weeks. Cigarettes are scarce and scarce, other and scarce other commodities. Nobody minds us very much, and we realize that with the ghastly shipping situation, it cannot be any other way. The aggravating thing is to hear people at home saying that we're living like fighting cocks, and this simply isn't true. Mind you, conditions vary. For instance, in the next wadi to mine is an RASC company, and they've been living like lords. Not from British rations, but from Italian. They have a couple of lorry loads of tinned Italian food, which they managed to get hold of somewhere. In spite of these continual raids, the Germans seem to kill remarkably few people. On the other hand, they have sunk plenty of shipping. We live on top of the shipping, and we can see what's happening. Ships concentrated in a small area are a much simpler target and more satisfactory type of target than men scattered all over the place. I'll give you one classic example concerning a hospital ship. Men are brought back from the perimeter either to the Canvas Hospital or to the old Italian stone brick hospital where I am now. Serious cases are operated on and then sent back to the base hospital. Or they were sent back to hospital. They are now cunningly removed by destroyer. Anyway, one day one of the big hospital ships sailed into the tiny harbour. There was a raid that day, small shipping generally. There was a raid that day, small shipping generally. She wasn't hit. The next evening she left, loaded with patients. She went out of, the, out of the boom, passing very close to us. She got about half a mile beyond the boom, when she was viciously and deliberately attacked by Stukas, about eight of them. By a great stroke of luck, she didn't receive a direct hit, but her plates were badly buckled. I saw this incident with my own eyes, and there can be no doubt about the deliberation of the attack. There were no other ships anywhere near her. She limped back into the harbour. Two days later, about the same time, she left again. The same incident occurred, but with a difference. This time, six dive bombers who'd been waiting high up in the heavens zoomed down. But just before the leader released his bombs, he suddenly swerved away to one side, letting his bombs fall carelessly into the sea. But just before the leader released his bombs, he suddenly swerved away to one side, letting his bombs fall harmlessly in the sea. 
The other pilots following him down did exactly the same thing. It looked as though the particular bunch, realizing they were about to bomb and sink a hospital ship, suddenly decided that their manners weren't quite as bad as all that. From time to time, the Germans drop a few ridiculous leaflets, and most of these are aimed at drawing a line of demarcation between the Aussies and the British. These leaflets always tell us that the Germans are absolutely certain to enter the town, and that when they do so, it will be in the interest of the British to wear a white distinguishing mark tied around their arm. The reason for this, state the naive Germans, is that the Australians are not gentlemen, and the British are and will be treated accordingly when captured. Their other effort is to point out to the Australians that the Aussies' lit lives are being lost for the British cause. It is a natural thing to undermine the influence of enemy propaganda and to underestimate the harm it does. This is really bad stuff and does the Germans no good whatever. The troops came down from the front once a week for a wash in the sea. The transport limitations are pretty severe owing to great shortage of petrol in the garrison. They say they'd hate to live in the harbour area because of the continued bombing and prefer to get back to the front, but I can hardly credit this. Near our gun position is the Tobruk Distillery for purifying seawater. This water is just about drinkable and it's, and it's rationed. The Germans bomb away happily at this distillery and although they've hit it several times, they never put it out of action. We live about a half mile from this distillery and one day we were out in a, our little boat when about 30 Stugas came down hot as hell for the distillery and then flattened out a few uh, over feet over the sea and a few feet over our boat. So as not to present too large a target, we dived from the boat and swam towards the rocky shore. Here we crouched naked behind the rocks while machine gun bullets spattered about the place. It was not great fun. We solved, we solved our... We solved our camp water difficulties early on by building our own rather elaborate distillery. This purified sufficient water for about 40 men per day. It was far more drinkable than the supplied from the town distillery. In May, my command grew bigger for posted... In May, my command grew bigger for posted um, along the south side were put parties of mine... In May, my command grew bigger posted along the south side were parties of mine spotters, about three posts of Sherwood Rangers whose job it was in life to watch their uh, to watch air raids and note and record any magnetic mines dropped by parachute. So efficient did this system become that the Germans soon ceased to drop these mines. If there's one being if there's one being in hospital does it gives one sufficient time to write letters. Yours Stuart. Letter 12. Dear CB, it has always been obvious that German planes concentrate firstly on shipping. By sinking ships, they sink our supplies. The harbors littered with the hulks of sunken vessels. Among them, the Italian cruiser San Giorgio and a small Italian liner. For several days, there was, in the harbor, a British naval gunboat, the type we've been using on Chinese waters. These vessels, with their six-inch guns, have been doing excellent shelling work up and down the coast. They lie in harbour during the daytime and venture forth at night. One of these ships lay day after day in exactly the same position. Needless to say, the Germans sank her. The Navy then brought another gunboat in, the famous Ladybird. Soon after her arrival, a little boat came into our cove taking soundings. A few
few hours later, in came the ladybird. She's not a large ship, but she filled the cove like a glove. Our tents, our kitchen, our mess were a matter of 40 to 80 yards from her and a direct line from her stern. This little diagram may give you, may give you some idea. We reckoned that dive bombers coming over for the attack would come straight down the little valley and sunk us beside sinking the ladybird. It would be It would be murder. I rode across the harbour and saw Michael Laycock and, ob and obtained his permission to move camp. We left the cookhouse where it was, but struck all the tents. First, the men just had to make shift on the cliffside. For the next few days, they built themselves respectable little huts dug out of the cliffside, ledges and crannies. Once these had been camouflaged with rocks and boulders, it was practically impossible to see them. Although initially they moved caused plenty of grumbling, the move caused plenty of grumbling, the men after it was over were quite happy. They were near the sea and near the guns. When I left, they were just about to transfer the kitchen up to the ledge on the cliff. The hourly expected attack on the ladybird never took place, fortunately. The very first night, a rough sea turned up, and she was barging her plates on the cliff sides. She turned out to help, un to help unable... We turned out to help uncable her, and she set sail into the harbour. During the night, she sailed away. She never came back to Tobruk, went off to the war in Crete and Greek waters. Just after this, I received orders to go to A Battery at RHQ. I swam across the harbour, a distance of about a mile with Michael Laycock. We arrived the other side sometime before, uh, he arrived the other side sometime before I did. We kept close to the boom all the time in case of an air raid. I'd been at RHQ about a week when I had a relapse of malaria. This was undoubtedly brought about by the strain of my swimming the harbour. For a couple, of, a couple of days I lay in my cubby hole in the cave where a lot of us slept. Then I was taken to the Australian hospital. Conditions here in the hospital are very primitive. It's nobody's fault. The buildings are brick and the place used to be an Italian hospital. One or two bombs have fallen around it, but I do not think it would be fair to say that this particular hospital has ever been deliberately attacked. We can hear the shells from Bardia, uh, Bardia Bill falling in the town. For the past month, the long-range guns of the Germans have been firing away at us, but have never been done much damage and certainly has hit no shipping. The two other officers in this ward, a fellow called John Newton from the Knott's Hussars and a young Aussie infantry officer from Queensland. The fellow has not been wounded, but is suffering from kind of shell shock. He lay for 36 hours in no man's land between the two lines during a heavy attack and shells were falling all around him. Seems to have affected his nerves. It's perfectly normal until an air raid starts. Then he begins to go a bit funny. This will be my last letter from here because I've been shipped out on a destroyer tonight. Back to Alex and civilization. I can hardly believe it. Some of the regiment are going out too. We're being relieved, battery by battery. Yesterday we had a funny sort of air raid. About 60 Stukas came over at a high level. Most of them were Italians. The German pilots came ra racing down in their usual bold fashion, but the Italians stayed right up there almost in the clouds, just dipping their nose down in order to release their bombs. Rather pathetic, really. The Germans have attacked Russia. Every day the Aussie Padre had been coming round to say that now the Germans will take a sock and the war will be over by Christmas.
Although this is absurd, the fact that Russia has come in on our side has, has done a tremendous amount for morale with the patients. Everything is primitive in this hospital. The food is not good and not plentiful. It is served up in cans and mugs, not always properly cleaned. The latrines are not very hygienic. There are cobwebs on the wall. Owing to the fact that our door is off its hinges, we can um, see all the casualties and operation cases being taken to and fro in the ward next to ours. The three of us in here spend most of our time playing poker. People have been down from the regiment to see me, including Flash Elliot the Colonel. People have been down from the regiment to see me, including Flash Collette, the Colonel. Well, it looks as though it's going to be goodbye Tobruk for me. It's certainly been the most interesting part of the war so far. Yours, Stuart. Letter 13. Dear CB, This is the third and so far the most comfortable hospital that I've been to. I was evacuated from Torbrook because they didn't have the proper drugs there to cure malaria. Nowadays, the system is not only to make one feel better, but to eradicate the germ from the system completely. Malaria is not so bad. For three or four days, one is in a high fever, and then one's temperature drops to normal and one takes quinine. Malaria is not so bad. For three or four days, one is in a high fever. Then one's temperature drops to normal, and one takes quinine, ephabrine, and plasmaquin. At the end of three weeks, the careful authorities take a slide to see if the blood stream is pure. So, here I am in a nice, comfortable room in the 8th General Hospital in Alexandria. My last night in Tobruk was very interesting. After a hospital supper, we were taken down to the dockside in transport and put into caves. About 10 o'clock, the destroyer About 10 o'clock, the destroyer It unloaded and it unloaded It unloaded and it unloaded It unloaded the hospital patients Some of the relieved personnel of the SRY and the mail The whole operations took perhaps an hour Twice during this hour, I saw down the Bardia coastline, a flash, and then heard a boom, and then a shell whistled overhead and fell somewhere in the town behind. When dawn broke, we were well clear of Tobruk. I spent a night on deck. George Jellicoe and Carol and Carol Mather, George Jellicoe and Carol Mather were also aboard, but more wisely than me, they'd spent the night in the small saloon on the destroyer. I had breakfast and lunch with them. By far the best meals I'd had for several months. The wounded lay on their stretchers on deck. They didn't get food, though they had tea brought to them. At first we thought we'd be attacked in the morning, but then nothing happened. We could see... We could see Mersa Matra in the distance. As we drew nearer to Alex, I couldn't help thinking about Tobruk and putting my mind back to the people who were left behind. For now, for how long, who knows? There are definite epics in our lives. To others, they seem petty, trivial, but to the individual concerned, 
These epics are vast import, even of sacred memory. I will always remember Tobruk. My experience of the war had been of disillusionment, dejection, and despair. Muddle apparently existed everywhere, and wherever we had encountered the Germans, we had run back the way we had come. I went to Tobruk, a bitter and rather stupid young cynic, and I come away from it gloriously proud of being British. Completely out off by land presented, no bar at all. Machine gunned, shelled, and bombed Tobruk saved Egypt, I think, and perhaps... I went to Tobruk, a bitter and rather stupid young cynic, and I've come away from it gloriously proud of being British. Completely cut off by land, presented no bar at all. Machine gunned, shelled, and bombed, Tobruk saved Egypt, I think, and perhaps deserved us the war. Deserved us the war. If the garrison had not kept a large number of Rommel's men engaged in the latter half of April, the Germans might have driven right through to Cairo, where so many of our men in Crete and Greece. I learned a new simplicity. I am proud to have been there, and to the 9th Australian Division, and to the British troops I owe a debt for showing me comradeship that I had never seen before. It was not devoid of beauty. Dawn from the north side of the harbour, the sea losing its blanket of greyness and turning to the astonishing blueness of the Mediterranean. The sky clears, the sun rises, and with its rise illuminates mile after mile of sandy, rocky, ever-changing coastline that stretches far away to Bardia. The sun played on this long stretch of colour, toned land, where met the sea, and every minute its real beauty changed. The air cleared, freshened and revived. Another day had come to Tobruk. And two, I remember my only one good bomb story, although personally, I'm hardly sick of bomb stories. I was driving a 10-ton diesel truck to one of our outposts. The proper driver, TPR Turner, was sitting in the spare driver's seat. We were two miles from town and heading away. We could hear the Akak guns going and looking up to the sky, saw one or two puffs of smoke. Shall we stop, sir, said Turner? Don't think it's necessary, I replied. They won't come for us. We'd better get on. But 30 seconds later, we went over a pretty considerable bump and Turner's hat got knocked off his head and fell outside onto the ground. Can we stop for my cap, sir, said Turner. No, we will get it uh, on the way back, I said. Then I thought, maybe we'll get some... Uh, will not come back this way. So I said, okay, we'll stop. Turner, with considerable alacrity, dived over the, under the lorry. I was caught up by the steering wheel and couldn't move. A German plane came swooping down and got rid of a load of bombs. One dropped 50 yards away. Splinters were all over the place. Small piece in the windscreen glass, but missing me. Right in the center of my path was a bomb crater. If we hadn't stopped, I wouldn't have been writing this now and we shouldn't have stopped, and it had not been for Turner's cap falling off. Such small things to our lives depend. Well, even though this sort of thing was happening, but a few weeks... Well, even though this sort of thing was happening but a few weeks ago, they seem rather drama-like now. From dwelling on a cliffside to having a private bedroom to oneself in a hospital. And what a hospital! This used to be a modern Italian school and has been converted into a hospital. Each officer seems to have a room to himself with running water. The meals are served in a dining room and there is a little lounge. There are tailors, cobblers, and stationers in the hospital. Most attractive thing of all is the fact that up patients are allowed out from lunchtime towards uh, toward most attractive thing of all 
is the fact that up patients are allowed out from lunchtime onwards to 6 p.m. This means we go up to Alex Sporting Club or down to the one of the ho of the hotels. There are a lot of New Zealanders from Crete here, and they are a grand type. Well, well, well. Looks as though comparative danger is coming. Is go well, well, well. It looks as though comparative danger is going to give a place to comparative comfort for a spell. Yours, Stuart. That concludes episode two of Explore History's Dear CB, A Soldier's Experience of War Through Letters. If you're enjoying the story, you can continue on with episode three shortly.